so good to me Monday morning it was all I hoped it would be all Monday morning Monday morning couldn't guarantee that Monday evening you would still be here with me Monday Monday can't trust that day Sometimes it just turns out that way Oh, Monday morning You gave me no warning Of what was to be Oh, Monday, Monday How could you leave And not take me Every other day Every other day Every other day, every other day of the week is fine Listen to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Nicole Georges, her latest book. Uh, actually, it's out next week, is it, I think? Mm-hmm. The 22nd. The 22nd. There we go. Almost exactly a week away uh, from, or it is from when we're talking, but I'll have this aired probably by the weekend. So it'll be out in a couple of days. Uh, Calling Dr. Laura, a graphic memoir from, uh, is it Houghton Mifflin? Mm-hmm. There we go. The fancy big book publisher, as well as the the zine Invincible Summer, of which there's a couple collections produced by Microcosm in Portland. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you. Um, 
getting kind of ready for this interview, I sat down and I read through a bunch of Invincible Summer uh, the books. First one I didn't read as much of because it's very text heavy and only had mm-hmm. so much time. Um, so I read that, and then I read the book, and it was interesting for me, kind of seeing how you went from working on through this work in the zine in kind of different ways and how it transferred and got more complex for how you did it in the book. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering about that process of like developing the idea and bringing it to that next step. Like the story? The story, yeah. Yeah, well, um, what, what happened was I would have been very happy to just leave it as a bunch of very cryptic bits in my diary entries, which is what I usually put in Invincible Summer. But then um, I was approached by someone to try and expand the story so they could know what happened next and so they could fill in the gaps um, because they were interested in trying to see what would happen if it was a graphic novel or a graphic memoir. So I sat down and just actually had these stories in my head. I just had never had the time or the reason to sit down and try and expand them into something longer, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, you know, I go for my diary entries. That's how I, that's kind of my external external memory because I have a terrible memory. And then I remembered all the stories in between and I just started thumbnailing it out in a bunch of little books, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. um... You know, like I had this whole breakup narrative in my head. And so I just tried to explain it really well and not take for granted that the reader knew anything, which I think is a problem with Invincible Summer is sometimes I I kind of don't spend a lot of time making sure the reader is on the same page as me um, because often I don't have a lot of space or time to do it in, especially with the daily diary comics that I do with Clutch. Mm -hmm. Because I only have one page each and we do them in such a short amount of time that I don't have time to introduce each character fully, tell you what their story is, how I know them, and what happens next. Well, it almost feels like when reading those, it's kind of a neat vagueness, which I kind of enjoy about it too. We're just kind of watching you go through your month of whatever's happening, and it's not like there's a specific story that has to be told through this month, which makes it kind of more of a personal thing to me when I read, because you read you know, a lot of autobio stuff is specifically on stories and I kind of love that fracturedness yeah you know I recently in the past couple of years what I'll do when we do the diary comics I'll just take notes every day mm-hmm. of everything that happens and at the end of the two weeks I'll look back at the notes and see if there are any storylines that kind of resolved themselves or that you know lend themselves to kind of a narrative arc throughout the week so I can remember to focus on those a little bit. Like last year I wrote on the first day that I wanted to get contacts. It would have been really satisfying if I had gotten contacts on the last day, but I didn't. <laughs> I kind of thought that that would have been so satisfying that I could draw a picture of myself with no glasses. There we go. But do you prefer with glasses or without glasses when you've been doing autobio for so long? I think that to a lot of people, my face is glasses. I haven't had contacts since I was in middle school, so um, I, I kind of would like to get them sometimes so I could see what my face looks like because I can't really remember. 
Like, I think it's easy to draw myself with glasses, and without glasses, I'm just like, I don't know. You have pretty, like, your vision isn't very fantastic from what I can tell. No. <laughs> if I just took them off and walked around, I would just walk into a wall. Wow. If my eyes would start going every direction, like that guy from Young Frankenstein. Um. Well, may maybe not literally, but you know. <laughs> uh, my eyes go a little wonkly, so I understand that. Um, when does this story take place in Calling Dr. Laura? Like around what the story, year? The story starts, what year? Yeah. Um, it goes from probably 2002 or 2003 until about 2006. Um, right around then. So when I was... 20, I think if when I was 22 or 23 for my birthday, my friend took me to see the palm reader who told me that my father was alive and I had been told he was dead. And then the book talks about how I dealt with that and then how I met somebody who helped me discover the truth. Um, and the whole thing wraps up, I think, when I was about 25, so in 2006. When about did you, like, how long did you spend on the actual comic part? And, like, kind of what kind of lead up was it with working with such a big publisher? Um, uh, let's see. I, I went on a literary tour with the story, like the written story, with just a few drawings in 2007. Was that the Sister Spit tour? Uh-huh. The first Sister Spit tour I went on in 2007. And that is where I met a literary agent in New York who said, you know, what, what is up with this story? What happened next? And I was like, oh, oh, somebody wants to know what happens next? And she was like, yeah, you should, if you tried to draw a graphic novel about this, I think we could try to sell it to a publisher. And I thought that sounded great because all I ever wanted to do was be able to draw, you know, for a job. So um, I started making the book proposal in 2007 and that took me a few months like two to six months because it was hard for me to figure out how the book was going to look and how I was going to present it and summarize this huge part of my life um, I think we finally sold it in 2008 and I drew for two years two years straight um, and then I turned it in to my first publisher and they were like this is great can you just draw it at a different size <laughs> and it was finished. I mean, it was inked. <laughs> I turned it in inked, and they're like, "This is great. Just draw it at a different size. We would love to publish this." Oh my god! And I, you know, I said, "Oh, I can't do that." <laughs> I mean, that's like asking someone to reshoot their whole film. So then we left and went to a, the new publisher who I have now in 2008, and they were like, "Great. Well, since this has literally never been edited, it's inked." We have, we're going to edit it, and it took me another year and a half of drawing additions and um, editing all the text by hand and drawing more. So altogether, it took me three and a half or four years of drawing, and then like a year of shopping it around and waiting and things like that. Had you worked with an editor before in that kind of context? No. And I was so happy to. Um, I kind of... Um, I have my friend Aaron Renier was working on a book for Scholastic around the same time and he was telling me how they made him turn in his pencils before they would let him ink anything mm -hmm. 
And at the time, I was like, what a drag. <laughs> My editor doesn't make me do that. I could ink the whole book. <laughs> and so then I did, and then I paid the price, which was like, you know, another, an extra year and a half of drawing, redrawing every, a lot of things that he didn't have to do. But yeah, I was happy to have insight and then a stranger to come through with new eyes and say, here's the things that don't make sense, or here's the parts where I don't know what you're talking about, where I think you could do something a little stronger. Mm-hmm. That was helpful. Was there a lot you could take out from like from that advice or that input as far as like your own kind of storytelling for future work? Um, yeah, I think it was just kind of that idea of not taking for granted that readers will automatically know what I'm referencing or um, pick up clues that I'm trying to lay down about things that are happening. I think I learned to be a little bit more direct with my storytelling mm -hmm. from the editors. Um, yeah. Now you started out um, doing zines. Did you have an intention in, in drawing when you first started doing zines or was it more just kind of a mishmash of everything coming together with the, the text heaviness? It was definitely a mishmash. I mean, Invincible Summer when it started, I had been doing zines for a long time and I was really into personal zines, but then I liked to draw and I just started, I had always liked to draw, but I had stopped at some point around middle school or high school because I was trying to draw X-Men character, style characters and it just wasn't working out for me. And I was like, well, I'm terrible at drawing, look. Like I'm trying to draw this person who is wearing like, you know, a bodysuit and it looks so weird. So I stopped drawing for a while and then I started again at, at the end of high school. Um, and then I just started integrating drawings more and more into my personal, my personal journal entries, mm -hmm. which then I would photocopy and turn into a personal zine. So Invincible Summer kind of just started getting more and more comic-y as time went on. I don't know why. I think because it, the better I felt about drawing, the easier it was to tell stories quickly and thoroughly with drawings as opposed to just writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it kind of progressed from being just photocopied diary entries to me getting a little self-conscious about that and starting to think about having an audience more. You seem like very careful not to, um, in some parts, rock personal boats too much as far as like this is kind of your deal and like friends and past relationships, you, you know, kind of leave. In those... Invincible Summer or in the book? In the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it was that do you do much of that? I couldn't remember Invincible Summer if it was so much of that or is it something you kind of more enforced with yourself in the book? Um, I Good question. I, you know, I think probably when I was in my early 20s in Invincible Summer I would just when you're in your early 20s, you know, like when you start dating somebody and you're like we're going to be together forever. So then you're like, yeah, I'm going to use my uh, person's real name and I'm going to draw a picture of them exactly how they look and I'm going to tell everyone about our relationship because it's going to be so perfect forever. Um, and since it was a diary entry, then when things went awry, then automatically that person was like the villain. Um, luckily, no one in my life seemed to mind at the time. Like They just kind of were into it, maybe in a narcissistic way, being drawn and written about. But I, I kind of felt like I wrote very truthfully about people, the good and the bad, when I was doing Invincible Summer. There's, you know, there are some breakups and things, mm 
Um, in the book, yeah, I tried to make sure that I was saying it from my own perspective so that it wasn't just like, oh, look at how terrible these people are, because they're not, you know, they're complex. And I wanted, I kind of tried to make an effort to make readers fall in love with my villainous girlfriend a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I tried to make them see the good parts about my mother or my family. And I tried to make them see the bad parts about me or how it actually was, you know, like during a breakup when I was acting totally insane. Did you have so it would be balanced. Do you have different reflections further down the road from when you first would talk about, say, that breakup as you do working on the book? Just yeah. like different realizations about yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because when the breakup happened, I was, let's see, like 25. And so then if you think about um, having to think about the same breakup for approximately five five years of working on a project that surrounds a breakup. Um, like not only was I aging in my 30s, which is valuable, but also I was just getting to like analyze and pick apart the story of the breakup and kind of in making it balanced for the reader, like by showing the reader that I was kind of nuts at times in the, in the breakup, um, I felt like then that was reinforced in myself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, in trying to show a balance of every person to the reader, I showed that to myself. It also can't be very easy going through that stuff over and over and over <laughs> again. You mean, like, having to draw about it after it actually happened? Yeah. Yeah, I I was telling somebody, um, I can't remember who, it was almost like I had a cloud hanging over me sometimes, or it was almost like when Frodo slips on the ring and then he's in that weird dark warpy zone with the wraiths and things it was like oh you know like I'm living my life having all these great things happen and you know I'm not in like stupid situations like that anymore but then I'm doing this art about it and comics take so long that you know it was it was like I was spending months at a time just drawing pictures of my ex-girlfriend and like thinking about our relationship and thinking about how it ended and like drawing the girl who she had an affair with um it just it was so weird it felt so weird to be thinking about a relationship like that so like five years later um and it made me it, I just kind of was really grouchy for a while while I was working on it but uh, then I feel like I transformed it into something different and cool which is art you know which is yeah. why I do art yeah I mean that's the big thing I mean art is personal and you're putting yourself into your work. Um,
so the book itself, like I don't want to go into too much detail of the content because one of the things I really love about it is that I really had no idea of what was going on in a way as far as like what to expect. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things, I mean, the the title of it, Calling Dr. Laura, um, maybe tell folks a little bit about why that's titled, why that's like an important kind of turning point for you um, as far as like I guess working through issues and through things yeah um, so in the book I went to a palm reader and they told me my father was alive which sounded preposterous because I had been told my whole life he was dead and later in the book I find out some information that kind of corroborates the palm reader's story and I was thrown into disarray mentally. I was like, I was thrown into disarray, and I didn't know what to do. So I was sitting at home, um, working on a sock monkey, and thinking about this family crisis that was happening, and how I was kind of one of the only people who knew it was happening, and I didn't really know what to do. And then I heard Dr. Laura, who is like this strange, motherly, conservative. Um, sometimes harsh person, um, this harsh voice I heard, and I was like, oh my gosh, I've always wanted my own reason to call an advice program. I've always wanted advice from a real professional. So I just decided to call Dr. Laura and see what she said. And she surprisingly, she she gave me advice, like surprisingly I started crying immediately on the phone with her. Um, And she said some things that were true and some things that were not so helpful to me. Um, and she definitely started yelling at me, which I ha- had uh, not anticipated, but I knew it was a possibility. Um, yeah, so I wrote a blog post about that, which became a story that I was reading on my literary tour on Sister Spit. And kind of, it was supposed to be funny. It was like, guess what? Here's about the time I called the Dr. Laura show. Isn't that funny? But then people were kind of more curious about all of the all of the factors surrounding my family drama and why I would call Dr. Laura in the first place. And it seemed kind of upsetting too for folks that may have been going through their own stuff and found Dr. Laura's advice to be less than uh, cheerful. <laughs> I kind of like how harsh she is. Um, I like tough love. <laughs> and she is cer- she is certainly tough. So when did you yourself start doing advice columns? You know, I actually published an advice column in Invincible Summer, also sort of as a joke. Um, I like I wrote fake questions to myself and then answered them. The questions, one of the questions was like, "How do I get creepy men on the bus to notice me?" And the answer was to get visible tattoos. Because, like, nothing says, you know, come talk to me, then let's chat, visible tattoos. Because I, think, I just had an experience of so many creepy people on the bus, like, lifting up their shirt to show me their back teeth or, like, trying to touch my arm and stuff. Um, so I did that, and that was fun. And then I decided to do more, so I started doing it on as a blog maybe four years ago or so. And um, I did it for a while, and I started doing advice videos 
where it was just my friend videotaping me and then editing together little bits that we did playing out people's advice that I was giving them. Um, and then some parents, some uptight suburban parents, um, got really mad at me because their fifth graders, who I was teaching at the time, Googled me, found the videos, which had information about how to um, attract people to have sex with. And <laughs> it went viral amongst the fifth grade. It's just like really upscale oh suburban elementary school. And the parents flipped their lids and called the principal and I got fired. Oh. So, so then I took, I just like, the minute I got fired, I called my friend who had made the videos and I was like, take it down, take it all down. Um, and I took down my advice blog for almost a year, at least six months. And then when I put it back up, I put um, like a, an age constriction on it. So you have to press a button that says you're 18 and over. And now I teach under an assumed name so that kids can't Google me. I don't tell them my last name. Mm-hmm. Because I like being an, arti- an artist who's an adult and I don't want to have to, you know. Compromise? Make- yeah, I don't want to compromise in order to make a living. Like I'm, I'm still wholesome enough to work with kids. I just don't want them to look up things that aren't meant for them. Well, it's funny. Sometimes you are kind of wholesome in your comics because you're like, and then I had a drink, but, you know, it's not about having a drink or something about how, like, I don't want to glorify <laughs> drinking. <laughs> I, like, I know. I'm actually simultaneously <laughs> such a prude. And then for that... Could be, I don't know. I think I'm simultaneously like kind of rough around the edges, but also prudish. <laughs> like I'm like, I'm not trying to say that smoking's so cool, but I was smoking a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> now you're uh, going on a tour, um, pretty extensive tour, from what I can tell, uh, with a friend. Want to tell us a little bit about it? Yes. Um, I'm doing a lot of dates around the West Coast by myself in mid to late January and early February, and then starting February 16th, I'm going on a month-long tour with a zinester named Kathy J. Snyder, who, um, she also went to Sister Spit last year, and she wrote a really hilarious book called Fine, Fine Music that's a collection of short stories about her life um, in her pug, whose name is Pug. So we're going to go together and... Um, we're actually starting in Los Angeles for the LA Zine Fest. That's how we're starting on East Coast tour. Because then we're um, <laughs> getting on a plane and flying to the actual East Coast. And I think we're also going to go to Chicago Zine Fest. We're going to, I'm going to visit the um, Center for Cartoon Studies, which I am over the moon about because I've it's never been there. amazing. It's this weird, idyllic little town filled with kids making comics. That is so cool. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to go there. We're going... We're going all over the place on the East Coast, and um, yeah, we're going to do a lot of libraries, some colleges, bookstores, and then we're going to try and pop up other weird places, too, if we can get the chance. So what can we expect at a um, at a stop on your tour? Depending on where you are, the following things might happen. We might give live advice to people in the crowd, which I have done before. I have people write their anonymous question on a slip of paper, and then we collect it in a hat, and we give rapid-fire speed advice um, at the end of the reading. I'm going to be reading from the book, Calling Dr. Laura, 
in a lot of places, I think I'll be talking a little bit about my process and showing earlier sketches of the book and kind of talk about how it came to be over those hard five years mm -hmm. of turning it in and then having somebody say, great, let's draw it in a different size. Um, Cassie's going to be reading from her book. I, of course, will have a visual element like a slideshow. And in some places, libraries and colleges mostly were giving workshops about making comics or making zines or um, taking your show on the road. Did you do as much kind of show stuff before doing Sister Spit, or does that kind of help you develop yourself um, being around all these women doing these really great performances for their written work? Yeah, I actually had, I've done it before. Sister Spit has helped, and it's shaped me immensely. It's, it's helped me have the opportunities that I have today, you know. Um, through Sister Spit, I met my literary agent. I got to meet so many people across the country, and I got to work on the book two different times um, at a queer writing retreat in Mexico. So basically, I got to go sit in a condo on the beach in Mexico working on my graphic memoir, which was amazing, and then going and swimming with sea turtles after I was done. It was crazy that I would ever get to do those things. Um, but actually, I went on tour the first time in, I think, 2004 with Joe Beale and Dave Roach, from Microcosm and from On Subbing. Um, this was before all the hullabaloo around Microcosm. We got in a car and we went out um, across the country, and I just kind of had to think of a way to present my work that wasn't just reading it normally. So um, I actually brought an overhead projector with transparencies on that tour. So I had transparencies of some of my drawings and then of like weird pictures that I liked, that are the kinds of things I would put in my zine. And I sang songs from Annie to warm up the crowd, <laughs> or to warm up myself. Um, and that's how Michelle T, who runs Sisters That Saw Me, was actually um, was reading at a benefit for the IPRC in Portland, the Independent Publishing Resource Center. And Michelle was flown in to read, too, and she saw me, and she liked my performance, so then she invited me on Sisters That. How do the um, the rapid-fire advice, how, how has that been a... I saw you were doing it at Short Run, but unfortunately my time at Short Run was like the last half hour, so I didn't really see anything that anyone did. Oh, yeah. How How is it? How was it? Yeah, like, um, it seems kind of like something could be chaotic, and is the advice always the best advice when you're doing it rapid fire? That's a good question. <laughs> That's a fair question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's... I think it's both funny and useful, and sometimes when I've slept on the questions, I will think of better answers when I'm given a little bit of time. But at the time, I'm sure that people can extract some nuggets of truth. The questions are funny. They range, you know, anything from, like, what do I do about my roommate? How do I get a date? Um, what do I do about my bad, my bad behaving animal? To things like... When I do it at colleges, they'll ask me really inappropriate questions like, what's your favorite position? Or like, where's the weirdest place you've done it? Or people will then try to like, or people will try to ask me questions that aren't advice, questions that are like fact-based, like explain quantum physics. Or, you know, they'll be like, because I, I do advice under the name America's Smartest Girl. So every once in a while, there'll be a Weisenheimer who put the question in there that's like, how many seconds are in a year? And um, 
I just don't answer those anymore. I just say that's not advice, and I keep going. Seems but pretty. it ends up. I think it ends up being comic comic relief that is um, sometimes a little bit helpful. Do you still continue doing zines? I do. I can't stop. It's almost like a compulsion. If I had more time in the world, I would be putting out zines all the time. Um, I have like so many drawings and books and journals of things that I would love to make into a third invincible summer anthology. I just haven't had any time. Mm-hmm. And I put out a bad roommate zine, an anthology of bad roommate stories in comics last year that I'm still promoting. And then I, I do my split comics with Clutch every year. It was a zombie jamboree Took place in a New York cemetery It was a zombie jamboree Took place in a New York cemetery Zombies from all parts of the island Some of them was a great Calypsonians Though the season was carnival They get together in Bacchanal And they're singing back to back Belly to belly, I don't give a damn I done dead already, oh, back to back Belly to belly at the zombie jamboree. I hear you talking back to back. Belly to belly, don't give a damn. Done dead already. Oh, back to back. Belly to belly at the zombie jamboree. One female zombie wouldn't behave. See how she jumping out of the grave. In one hand, a quarter rum. The other hand, she knocking conga drum. The lead singer starts to make his rhyme. The zombies are rattling their bones in time. One bystander had this to say. It was a pleasure to see the zombie break our way. And they're singing back to back, belly to belly. Don't give a damn. Dumb dead already. Oh, back to back, belly to belly at the zombie jamboree. I'm going to talk to Bridget Bardo. I tell her, Miss Bardo, take it slow. All the men think they're Casanova when they see that she's barefoot all over. Even old men out in Topeka find their hearts getting weaker and weaker. So I can ask her for your sake and mine. At least we're her earrings part of the time. And I'm singing back to back, belly to belly. Don't give a damn, damn dead already. Oh, oh, back to back, belly to belly at the zombie jamboree. A lot of world leaders talking about war, and I'm afraid they're going too far. So it's up to us, you and me, to put an end to catastrophe. We must appeal to their goodness of heart and ask them to pitch in and please do their part. Cause if this atomic war begin, they won't even have a part to pitch in and we'll be singing back to back, belly to belly, don't give a damn, done dead already. Oh, back to back, belly to belly at the zombie jamboree. I hear you talking back to back, belly to belly, don't give a damn, done dead already. Oh, back to back. 
belly to belly at the zombie. Zombie jamboree. Growing up, um, I guess you grew up in like kind of like small town middle America or medium town middle America. I grew up in suburban middle America. Okay. Um, how did you first get exposed to zines? I got exposed to zines through being online. I was active on Prodigy and I was really into ska music, so I was on these, like, ska message boards. They weren't message boards. It was a thing where they send you an email that has, like, 15 different emails about different things related to ska music. What is that called? It's like a digest. So somebody on there, did. they were like, oh, my new, my new design. I did a design. It's only a dollar. It's about ska. And then everybody on the message board was sending them dollars for it. And, of course, I didn't know that it was called a zine. I thought it was called a zine for so long. So I sent the person a dollar, and I got their zine in the mail, and it was so bad. It was really boring. It had a really, um, really boring layout full of clip art from like early 1990s computer clip art. So I was like, this, this guy got all these dollar bills and all this attention for this. I was like, I could do something better than this. So I started doing my own zine about working at Subway and ska music and aliens. I was obsessed with aliens when I was like 14. Um, this is when I was 14, not when I was like 25. So, <laughs> yeah, it was like last year. And I just started doing about working at Subway. Um, and then I just started going to record stores in Kansas City because I grew up in the suburbs outside of Kansas City around that time. So I would go to record stores in Kansas City and now I could identify what zines were on the rack, whereas maybe before I had looked past them. Um, and I just started picking up, you know, all kinds of zines and comics. Like King Cat I was reading when I was a teenager. And um, The Assassin and the Winer by Carrie McNinch. And some James Kachalka comics when I was maybe like 17. But I just started getting all those things and tons of zines and meeting more and more people that did zines and sending my terrible zines to so many people and to Fact Sheet 5 and stuff. Um, yeah. I kind of can trace everything in my life back to zines. I think. Was that kind of um, a first chance for kind of real exposure to queer culture as well? Totally. I, I mean, my whole political mindset was formed through zine culture of the 90s. So, like, I think I first heard, I, I kind of, I already had a vegetarian consciousness, but it really got reinforced by reading people's zines about being vegan and through being involved in, like, hardcore music where everybody was vegan and straight edge. Mm -hmm. um, I learned a lot about queer culture and fat politics through zines and Riot Girl. I wasn't, I wasn't even a Riot Girl. I just kind of liked their zines, but I was like, oh, no, I'm not a Riot Girl. Um, there were those books that were put out that were professionally published books by V. Vale or the Research, yeah. like Zines, Volume 1, Zines, Volume 2. I love those and they books. Had, those were so great. But there were interviews with, like, teenage feminists with shaved heads. Or um, there was a zine or magazine called Fat Dyke, like, just all about, like, fat lesbians and the women who love them. Or, like, a, a book, a zine called Fat So that was about people that were fat and unapologetic. 
And it was the first time I had seen any of those things, and it blew my mind. And I was, like, photocopying that book, like, giving out pamphlets about how you shouldn't, like, hate on fat people just because they're fat when I was, like, 17 years old. Um, and also, I came out in a zine when I was, like, 17. I was, there was a page where I was like, I think I'm bi. Shh, don't tell anybody. Because <laughs> that, that seems like the best thing to do. Did you get responses from folks, just, like, encouraging? Not really about that. It was so under the radar. Yeah. Um, I, You know what, actually, so I told you that my first zines were about, like, spa music and working at Subway and Aliens. When I shifted and started doing my own personal zines, and I kind of tried to make them trauma-based zines at first because I was really into zines where people were talking about having, like, mental health issues or being abused. I was really into that. So that I tried to make my own kind of deeply personal, too much information zine that was very, very personal. And my friends were so weirded out. My friends were just like, you know, lackadaisical punk boys who were like, oh, that's kind of too much information. <laughs> like, I didn't really want to know that about you. So I dialed, I learned to dial it down a little bit. I think, but the adults in my life were very supportive. The adults around Kansas City were like, oh my God, there's this totally weird 15-year-old in the suburbs, you know, writing about things that are highly personal. We encourage you to do this. Did you pretty much move straight to Portland from there? I did. You know, I moved um, from the suburbs to Kansas City proper for a couple of years after I dropped out of high school. Mostly because I had my dog Beja at the time, who I still have, and my wow. parents didn't want her. My parents didn't want her living in their house anymore. That's amazing. So she's, she's like, she's um, fifteen and a half years old. So then we moved to Portland. Um, one of my best friends wanted to move out of town. I wanted to move out of town. My high school boyfriend wanted to move out of town, and my best friend at the time wanted to move to either Olympia or Portland because she was into Olympia music culture, like. Pay records and kill rock stars. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, we don't have anything to do with music, so we should move to Portland if we're going to move to one of those, because at least we'll have something to do there. Also, I met a bunch of crusty punks on something called the Primate Freedom Tour, who wanted to all move to Portland and take down OHSU, which is a university that tests on primates. And I was like, great, let's all go there. And then I'm the only one that showed up. <laughs> so OHSU still exists. And <laughs> uh, the primates are still there. But now I'm here, and I just liked it. I moved here sight unseen. And I thought I would get around to going to college here, but I just never did because I was too busy. I think it's okay. Thanks. <laughs> um, is there anything we have to look forward to? Or um, after doing this book, are you kind of going to be in that routine of like working on something for a while, and then that comes out? I would love that. I have a lot of ideas for more books. I wish there was more time in the day where I had a Nicole robot that I could program to draw the comics that I want to exist, that I have notes for. But in the meantime, I hope to put out another book that is hopefully a collection of autobiographical stories surrounding animals, because I have had a lot of hijinks living on farms and accidentally 
that doesn't sound that funny, but accidentally killing animals when I was a kid. Or I'm a very well-intentioned vegan, and I've had a lot of animal missteps in my life. Um, so I kind of like to do a collection of those. I would like to do illustrations, and we'll see what happens next. Now, you worked on a farm for a while. I think I remember reading one of the Invincible Summers that was, like, really remote location. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about that, like, what kind of farm it was and what was the choice to kind of go and do that. Uh, it was a place called Farm Sanctuary, which is a sanctuary for rescued factory farm animals in Northern California. Um, the closest town is 45 minutes away, and it's... The closest big town is 45 minutes away. It's Chico, California, which is home to the biggest party school in America, Chico State. So it's just full of, like, grizzly frat boys. Um, but the farm is very far away from that. It's very rural, and it's full of, you know, goats and chickens and sheep and cows and pigs. And I first heard about them when I was 16, and I got a tofurkey, and on the box it had info about Farm Sanctuary. And then... I met somebody who had gone there on an internship, and then that became my dream and my goal. So when I was, I think, 20 or 21, I went and did an internship there for a month, which was basically shoveling manure and cleaning out barns. And then I went back when I was 22 or 23. I guess I was 22. I went back there, and I thought I was going to live there forever, but it was so remote, and I had no friends outside of the farm and I was so lonely and there were no gay people for miles. Mm -hmm. There was like one gay person in Chico. <laughs> um, and I just was too young to be like kind of hermiting myself. So I decided I wanted to go back to Portland and do something to help animals here. Um, but when I lived there, when I was 22 and I was trying to live there forever, my job was being an education coordinator. So I gave tours and I... Um, dragged the interns around, showing them animal atrocities in town and um, cooking for them and teaching them about farming, farm animal issues. Do you still volunteer with animals or do anything with animals? I don't think I do. I, I donate to animals, you know, and I draw a lot of things about animals, but the only volunteering that I do in Portland currently is I volunteer with senior citizens. Mm -hmm. um, I actually just went on a rampage and applied to so many different volunteer programs in Africa working with chimpanzees, and nobody wrote me back. Oh. I know. I think it would be really fun, though, to go do some kind of art project about apes. That's, that's my hope for the future. There's something I find a lot more appealing about someone doing that than necessarily... I always find it weird and colonial when folks are like, I'm going to go to Africa and dig ditches for people. It's like, uh... But working the animals is very different. I just, you know, that's where they are, so I gotta... That's where I would go visit them wherever they were. <laughs> I like that. Um, thank you for taking the time to join me today, Nicole. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Uh, reminder folks, I've been talking to Nicole Georges. Her new book is Calling Dr. Laura, a graphic memoir. Uh, Nicole is going on an extensive tour on the west and east coasts. Um, check out her website. What's your website? NicoleJGeorges.com And your advice column? com. There we go. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you, Robin.
Living. 